Hi, I'm Yudi Bunyamin and welcome to the Neumann Talk, a podcast where I meet past winners of the Australian Mathematical Society's BH Neumann Prize to learn about their journeys through the world of mathematics. This episode's guest is Dr. Adrienne Jenner. She's very recently completed a postdoctoral position at the Université de Montréal in Canada and taken up a lecturer position at the Queensland University of Technology. Adrienne works in mathematical biology. She's worked in developing qualitative models that aim to understand fundamental questions in cancer and more recently in COVID-19. Adrienne has also done a lot of work in the Australian mathematics communication space. Adrienne jointly won the BH Norman Prize in 2017 while she was a PhD student at the University of Sydney, working under the supervision of Peter Kim, Adele Koster, and Federico Frascoli. Adrienne, what do you remember of your Norman Prize talk? So I think the day of my Neumann Prize is probably a bit of an odd day to describe, but actually on that day, I was part of the inaugural Ostemes debate, uh, which started back in 2018 at Ostemes conference. So what I remember of the talk was being completely uh, nervous and running off an adrenaline high because I'd just done the Ostemes debate and had been terrified to stand up and speak in front of everyone. So I remember being very scared to then give that talk. Uh, But I think the other thing I really remember is how happy the audience was. I think it makes such a difference when you give a talk and the audience members just smile back at you. So I also remember that when I first got into the room and I was kind of shaking from all the adrenaline of the debate, that everyone just was happy to see me and smiling and like willing to listen to whatever I had to say. And I think that made me feel relaxed and excited to give the talk. But apart from that, I don't really remember much of the actual (laughs) presentation side of things or even the questions. <laughs> Do you remember what the debate was about? Uh, yeah, it was uh, should blackboards be used in classrooms or it, I haven't phrased it correctly, but it was like whether blackboards are the way to teach mathematics or not or whether they're necessary. And so I was on the affirmative team, so arguing that we do need blackboards and blackboards are necessary to teach mathematics. So it was a lot of fun to try and convince the audience that uh, the blackboards are the way of the future when we're moving into this age, uh, that technology, I mean, even now we lecture virtually, basically, so we don't use blackboards. Uh, so it was actually really fun to think about what had helped me learn mathematics growing up and why I thought that being able to write on a blackboard was so necessary or to see someone actually visually write on a blackboard. Um, and we did win. So <laughs> they decided that blackboards are definitely the way of the future, even though right now we aren't using blackboards. Um, <laughs> so it was it was a really fun debate, I think. And I think the audience, especially because it was all mathematicians, they loved hearing about, you know, the aesthetic of a blackboard and how you just love the feel of chalk in your hand when you're writing on a blackboard. There's no other feeling. So that was really fun. So I guess for some context for the audiences, this was a thing that was introduced that year in 2017 at the OSTMS meetings, was that they have these debates on various topics relating to mathematics. The year I went in 2019, the topic was on 
is mathematics invented or discovered? Something like that. And it's usually hosted by like a prominent figure in mathematics communication. So uh, who hosted it that year? I think it was Adam Spencer. I think. Yeah, that rings a bell. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was in Sydney as well. Like, the conference was in Sydney as well, right? So that. I was very excited to see him because I, I, of course, I, I know of him as a math uh, communicator. And so I was very nervous then to realize he was chairing our debate. <laughs> so that was really cool. Yeah, I had, I had the same feeling, even though I wasn't debating, that year was hosted by Simon Pampana. And yeah, there's a little bit of like a starstruck moment, you see him in the flesh. And, like, yeah. <laughs> and he does his comedy routine, his math comedy routine. And the, these debates are like plenary, like everyone at the conference gets to watch yeah. them, right? So you, 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 had, you just had everyone like watch you at this debate, right? And, yeah. then, you, and then you go on to do your talk, right? <laughs> do you reckon that helped in any way like with winning the prize I, I yeah definitely because I think by the time I got to my talk I didn't I didn't think I could say anything else wrong like I could no longer concentrate <laughs> or anything I wasn't nervous anymore I just was riding this like high of uh, I guess excitement because the debate was so much fun everyone was laughing I mean we thought we were hilarious I don't know whether the audience thought so but we made a ton of jokes and people laughed whether with us or at us, I'm not sure. But I think just that entire experience meant that when I rolled off stage and into the next room to give my research talk, I was just ready to go. So maybe the, I mean, maybe the point of that means that we should all give debates right before we present research. Like that's just the, the best way to get <laughs> get a good talk out. I don't know. Um, I also had chalk all over me because we used chalk during the debate. Like we... We, we had it all over our hands and we wore black outfits so that we had it everywhere on, on our pants and our shirts. So I think that also probably was another reason I won, just because I might have looked a bit ridiculous giving my research talk. Um, so, yeah. But the thing is, you're no stranger to the OSTMS conferences or conferences in general. I mean, that was your third time at OSTMS, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, it was. And the first time... In 2015, you got an honorable mention, right? Um, yeah. So it's like, it doesn't come as a complete surprise, I don't think, that you eventually went on to win. A lot of people who win honorable mentions go on to win later on. But you also have won, prior to 2017, I think it was in 2016, you won the TM Cherry Prize. I might let you, first of all, explain to the audience what that is. Uh, yeah, so... Like the B.H. Newman Prize is the prize for the best student talk at OSTMS, the T.M. Cherry Prize is the prize for the best student talk at ANZIAM. So there's the two conferences that run uh, in Australia for mathematics, and uh, one is OSTMS and the other is ANZIAM. So in 2016, I actually won the best student talk at the other math conference, which is ANZIAM. Uh, so that was also very, very exciting. I do remember more, much more about that talk, actually. Really? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> ANSIAM is for applied math, right? Yes. Geared toward more applied math. Yeah. And you are one of very few people who have won both. So when you won the Neumann Prize, did that come as a surprise? Uh, maybe yes and maybe no. I guess I really, by the time I got to the Ostermis conference where I run, won the Neumann, Neumann Prize, I'd already won the honorable mention for it. I think three years earlier. And so I knew that I really 
wanted to, I didn't go in trying to win, but I definitely went in with the mindset that I didn't want to give a talk that wasn't as good as the honorable mention I got before. Cause I'm always a little bit afraid that people will see in the program that I got an honorable mention and then come thinking it's a prize winning talk. And then I'll just give a terrible talk. So I definitely, I, I definitely put a lot of effort into those talks. Uh, but I mean, I definitely was still surprised when I won. I thought I thought I would not have done a great talk after that debate. I was just too uh, too exhausted and too running too high on adrenaline. So, yeah, that that's an interesting point you bring up. This has come up one or two times in one of some of the other interviews, especially with the people who won very early on in their PhD. Like I won it my first time at Ostemes, and now you know I'm preparing for my next Ostemes talk, mm. and I'm. I feel this pressure of like, it can't be a bad talk. Yeah. <laughs> like I can't rock up and do this anymore. Yeah. I, I know exactly how that feels. When I went to ANZM the second, the year after winning the TM Cherry. So before I won the BH Newman, I don't think I've ever been so nervous. And I probably gave a terrible talk because I was so worried that people would judge me or judge like harshly of my, my speaking ability because I'd won before, but I think it doesn't matter in the end of the day. People are just interested in what your research is. Yeah, that's, that's good advice for me. I'm, <laughs> so don't <yeah>. worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what was the reaction of, say, your supervisors when you finally won it? Uh, so it's so funny. My Adele Costo was one of my PhD supervisors. I uh, was actually sitting next to me at the Ostermess conference dinner when I won the BH Newman. So I think she was very excited because the work I presented uh, that day was very much a project we'd worked really hard on together uh, for the last year. So I think she was really excited as well, just for me and for us. So it was a really um, exciting experience. I remember being so nervous walking up to the stage to accept in front of everyone. And also at the same time, they had photos from the debate uh, flashing up on the screens behind. So there's like this photo of me accepting the award with a photo of like behind <laughs> in a slideshow from me in the debate, just gesturing with chalk all over me. And I just think it was probably the most hilarious thing anyone's ever, ever well, we seen. We need to hunt down that photo. <laughs> uh, I, I, have some, I have some screenshots on my phone, so I can, I can, I can send them to you. <laughs> I have to ask, so what do you think is the secret? Like... <laughs> What's the secret? Maybe not so much of, you know, winning the Beige Neumann Prize, but of giving a good math talk. So I definitely think for me, the secret feels like just that you have to kind of care about what you do. You have to actually like your research. Um, I don't think you necessarily have to be a good speaker. I wouldn't say I'm a good speaker. I say so many things that don't make sense. And I I do this thing where I start a sentence and I never end it. I just halfway through that sentence, change my mind and go to a different topic. So I wouldn't say I'm a great speaker, but I think what people have said to me over the years is that I seem to just really care about what I do and I'm really interested in it. And I convey it in a way that the audience becomes interested in it. So I think at the end of the day, it's just a a secret I would say is to, to like what you do. And if you're not liking what you do, then do something else. Or find another research project that excites you because that excitement will be what comes across to the audience and gets everyone else excited about what you're presenting. You did your undergraduate at the University of Wollongong. 
right? And it was a Bachelor of Mathematics. So I guess even from the beginning of your bachelor degree, there was a sign that you were going to go on and pursue mathematics. Why maths? What got you into it? Uh, so I would definitely say that when I left high school, I picked a Bachelor of Mathematics because I did well in math, not because I necessarily liked it. I remember maybe like most people find when they leave high school, you don't always know what you want to do. So when I finished, I looked at my how my grades were doing and I thought I'm, I'm good at math and I'm good at French. So I did a double degree in math and French, or at least I signed up for that. Um, and it wasn't until in my second year when I went on exchange to England, uh, I was at Sheffield University and they do a lot of math bio focused or applied math focused courses there. And I um, was in this lecture and I remember the lecturer putting up the SIV model, which is the model for how you describe epidemics, which is really relevant because of COVID at the moment. Basically, it's this model that's been studied for ages and it's just a really basic model that's used to describe how many people are not infected, how many are infected and how many are recovered. And I remember when she put that up on the screen and described how it can be used to predict basically how epidemics or pandemics will evolve. I was just talked from then on and I knew that I needed to be in, in mathematics, in research, in applied math. I like, just knew that that was the direction I wanted to go in. And who knew it would be so hard to then do a PhD though? <laughs> it's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> but um, yeah, and so then I guess kind of just continued on that path of following research, finding things that interested and interested me and just kept going and now I'm kind of, doing that every day. But I guess that means that when you started your undergraduate, you didn't start it with the intention of being a full-blown mathematician one day, whatever that means. And I guess there are people who have that one moment that changes everything. But I think one thing that's, like having heard a lot of people's stories, the thing that's a bit different about your story is that that one moment isn't a story about like, uh, like it has a lot to do with the applications as well. I guess you, the day that you got hooked wasn't the day you got hooked on maths, but the day that you got hooked on your particular area of research, right? Yeah. Was anything ever going to change that? Like, could you have become, you know, a, you know, a mathematical oceanographer or, <laughs> a, or maybe even a pure mathematician? Or is- that is a really great point. I never really looked at it like that. I mean, I, I always loved math. It wasn't just that I was good at it. I did love the the way you could constantly be learning about the world around you or learning new things that you didn't already know, but that it didn't have any application to life. Like there is that side of mathematics where you can learn a bunch of theorems or you can look at analyzing a bunch of equations and it might not have any application. And I did always love that, but I think that it wasn't until I saw the application in medicine primarily that I was really hooked I, it's, I don't, I didn't ever want to be a doctor or anything. I was never into uh, biology or medicine or disease study in any way. But I think once you see, or once I saw that first kind of mathematical equation, which was then solved and then predicted the number of people that would survive a pandemic, I just thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. That that something so simple or kind of, elegant as mathematics or kind of just non-normal in a way because math isn't really like real life everyday life it's kind of its unique own language something like that could then be translated into something so applicable 
the everyday life. It just really hooked me, I guess. So what did you do after that? I mean, a lot of people, especially a lot of, say, high school students I meet who sort of are hooked onto maths and have been lucky enough to see you know, the beauty of maths very early on, don't know how to pursue that other than the obvious go into a degree. I mean, you did all the obvious yeah. things, but what did you do that night when you got home? <laughs> you know? Well, I guess I was still on exchange in England, so I, I kind of maybe traveled to Ireland that weekend. But no, really, I think that it's you've uh, I think you've nailed it. It is not clear even once you realize you like maths, how to stay in maths, because the idea of uh, doing an honors or a master's degree and then a PhD is also daunting. And it's a really difficult kind of step to see in your career, to see that progression. So I actually, when I came back from exchange, I finished it, finished my last year of, of uni, of my undergraduate degree, that is. And then I went and became a travel agent because I, I couldn't really figure out how to do it. I didn't know how to go from, like I knew what I loved and I knew I wanted to apply math to like medicine and disease, but I didn't know how to, how to take that next step. So I moved to Sydney and worked at Flight Center for a year. (laughs) How, why of all things, uh, travel agents? Uh, well, I guess I, I traveled like, because I, I went on exchange to the UK. So I'd spent some time there and I did really love living there and seeing the world. And I, I did French as well at uni. So I, I liked France and I, I'd lived in France for a while when I was at high school. And so I thought that was the natural kind of next step to take. And the funny thing about being a travel agent is that if you kind of spend time being a travel agent, you actually do a little bit of coding. Like it's not like uh, coding in, in the sense of um, Python necessarily or, or a computer language, but it's got its own kind of code and I don't know how you would describe it, but its own little language that you use to book flights, make new flights, connect flights together. So I think that actually as I progress with being a travel agent, that idea of the coding aspect and the kind of linking two things up together and the problem-solvingness of travel agency made me realise that I actually needed to come back into math and figure out how to actually get back to what I really wanted to do, which was using math to understand real world problems and diseases and, and medicine. So it actually helped you like strengthen your desire to pursue math. Yeah. And I have no regret for taking the year off. Like I, I think that it makes me a better version of myself that I took a break to really think about what I really liked about mathematics and why I really wanted to come back. And that's when you went to do honours at the University of Sydney. And then... Yeah. Did you do a PhD right away after honours? Yeah, I did a year of honours at uh, the University of Sydney and then I transitioned straight into my PhD, which was, I think, uh, maybe three and a half, four years. I think maybe four years. I guess, why? (laughs) Like, (laughs) like you said, it is daunting. Like, I took a long time to make that decision. I mean, it's a good point. I think that, so I was very fortunate that my honours project, so I I met my supervisor, Peter Kim, through an old lecture I had at the University of Wollongong. She actually knew him and she said, I think that you'd be really, you really like the projects he works on. And so I was really fortunate that once I met him and I started my honours year, I found like a niche that I was interested in. And so once I finished honours and our work, together I it was just a natural progression to continue working together Peter was 
keen to keep working together. I'd also started working with Adele Costa at the University of New South Wales by then. And as well, like I, we, I loved working with her. It was in a similar area of research that I enjoyed. So it was a natural kind of next step. I didn't have to make a decision really except to fill out a form and continue on. <laughs> was, yeah, I was lucky. And do you have any advice for students who are thinking of doing like higher degrees in mathematics? Like maybe those students who are, say, about to get into honours or who are doing honours now and having identity crises and not knowing what they want to do. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was one of you and it's definitely okay to have an identity crisis for sure. I think my advice would be, like I said earlier, or like I, I kind of always just think this, is just to find something you're interested in and not to worry about the rest. Like if there is some aspect of mathematics that you're like, oh, this is intriguing or I find problem solving interesting or, or I like set theory, then just to go with that, just to run with that and forget about everything else because it will work out. Like it does work out. The career does work. It's not as daunting as it may seem when you first start. That was a question from Adele, by the way. We asked her <laughs> something that she said about you that I might share with you is how you're not afraid to ask for help. And yeah. she's saying like, yeah, that's something that you'd be surprised to hear is not common amongst PhD students. Yeah, I think um, it's so important who your supervisor is as well. I think that I got really lucky that I had supervisors that were really great mentors. And I think, I mean... I think it's really important to find someone that you mesh well with. And we, we don't mesh well with everybody, but to find someone that you can see potential with and that, like you said, you're not afraid to ask questions. You're not afraid to go to them for help and say you're struggling. Like, I think that that's so important. I wouldn't have done as well in my PhD without supervisors who were able and willing to help me. Yeah. So maybe this is a good time to ask you about what your PhD research was about. And the way I like to put this question is, if I, and not you, but if I were speaking to a random person at the pub and they asked me, what does Adrienne do? Like, what is her research about? What should I tell them? So my research is about using mathematics to help understand cancer treatments and not just cancer treatments, but also cancer development, but uh, primarily focusing on how we can use mathematics to improve current experimental treatments of cancer. And that might be looking at changing something simple like the dosage protocol, so how much you give someone per day or how many days you should be giving a drug. And it might be more on the treatment aspect, like how we can change characteristics about a drug to better improve a cancer treatment for a patient. And so that's kind of a general statement about what I do, but mostly I focus on a few different treatments. So one treatment that I've been focusing on is uh, more recently is chemotherapy. But during my PhD, it was primarily focused on a type of treatment called oncolytic virotherapy. And that looks at using viruses, just like the flu or maybe COVID, but not COVID at the moment, but viruses just like that to treat cancer. And so the idea is those viruses are engineered so that they only kill off tumor cells. And so I've talked a lot about the bio because I think the bio helps us understand the project, but really it was how can you describe these viruses 
and their effect on patients' cancers using mathematics and leverage a mathematical approach to improve the treatment for each patient. I think, like you said, you use the biology to explain it because that's what gives it context and makes it more understandable to a general audience. And then you throw in the bit, I use mathematics (laughs) to... You've done a lot of work in science communication, which or mass communication, which I'm really interested in talking about. I guess where I want to start is when you throw in the I use mathematics bit, <laughs> do you think people in their mind like see what you do as a mathematics project or more as a biology project? I think it depends. I think to biologists, I'm a mathematician. <laughs> Definitely, I'm not a biologist to biologists. Uh, I think to mathematicians, I'm probably still a mathematician, but not a pure mathematician. But I think to the general public, whenever I explain what I do, people still associate me with mathematics. I think that maybe that's because mathematics is viewed as as a bit of a black box anyway sometimes. It's something that kind of, it's this language of its own. It's kind of set apart sometimes from the rest of the world. And so when you say I use mathematics, people are happy to accept that you're probably a mathematician. No one really questions me. Uh, but yeah, I think that I probably would sit on the divide. Like I wouldn't classify myself as a biologist. I'm definitely a mathematician at heart, but I do a lot more biology than your average mathematician. Yeah. And I definitely want to pick on that point a little later on, but like you said, you know, you you can use the biology to explain what you do mathematically or like to give it context to people. Do you think there's like something different or like an advantage or maybe even a disadvantage in your specific area of research compared to other areas of maths when it comes to communicating to the general audience? I mean, yes. And no, like, yes, I definitely think that people would see math biology as being a lot easier to uh, communicate to a general audience because once you uh, start talking about something, people can visualize or at least they have a recollection or a meaning for, say, viruses, uh, people can connect with you. So it does give us that or give me at least that one step closer to being able to communicate easily with someone because I can use a lot of words that people already recognize or, or describe things that people like have a general understanding of. But in saying that though, like there's a lot of technical aspects to what I do and I choose what I do and don't describe because I think that sometimes you don't need to go into the technical detail of what you do to get something across. I think that it's enough just to describe it as a whole so that people can visualize it or at least try to understand it. Um, so yeah, I think that we there's definitely an advantage, but I also think that it uh, doesn't mean that science communication isn't applicable for other mathematical areas. I think it should be just as um, I feel like science communication should be open to people who are doing pure math as well. I think it even more so than math biology. Even before I started my PhD, I'd seen a bit of the math communication stuff you'd done. Like I'd oh, really? <laughs> watched a video or two about you and I'd heard of you through Adele and and I think one thing that's evident is you have like this toolkit of great analogies that you use. <laughs> I mean, co- I think COVID has given half the mathematicians of the world like good analogies. Yeah. Right. But like you have these good analogies that you use, like, for example, the Occam's Razor uh, talk that you did, which everyone oh, yeah. should go and check out. It's really good. Like I sort of watched that and went, that is a great way to explain it. Right. Is this something that comes 
I mean, I, it probably doesn't come easy. But is this something that you like consciously think about? Like, do you say block out two hours of your time to think about how do I communicate this? Or is this something that comes out as you do research? I think it's a bit of both. I definitely think I'm a more uh, visual person. So it means that I have to uh, either visualize something in my mind or draw it to be able to actually articulate it or understand it. And I think that helps to create metaphors because I I probably am not the smartest tool in the shed. Or like I'm all right at math, but I think I actually just spend a lot more time trying to understand it, which means that if I have to try to understand it, I have to come up with an analogy or a metaphor for myself to really understand something. And I think that means that I'm able to kind of come up with these metaphors for science communication because I already have to use them to understand my own research. I think that's just kind of how my mind works when I'm facing a problem. Uh, So, but I do spend like, especially if anything with science communication, like Occam's razor or with Splendor in the Grass, when I did the science test, I I did definitely have to spend time uh, preparing for that because I thought that like, I obviously love math, but I know that there's a lot of people who don't love math. And so I didn't want to get up and do a science communication talk or a presentation that someone sees and it's like, yep, just another reason I don't like math. So I think I definitely do spend a lot of time preparing for those things because I want to make sure I do a good a good job for math, representing math, I guess. Yeah, I want to I want to like point something out there, which is you brought up Splendor in the Grass. And this is something when I looked at your like the list of things that you've done, this is something that really like made me stop. And like, <laughs> you know, that, that, that's really unexpected. So my understanding of Splendor in the Grass is that it's a music festival you know, that they do yeah. in, in Australia. I'm, I'm not sure exactly where, but like by music festival, I mean, like it's a rave, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it like is. With it DJs is. And, yep. Like not, yep. like that is the last place you expect to see a mathematician doing outreach yeah i I cannot not ask you about that yeah how Um, did this come about uh so that came about uh because i actually entered fame lab which is a competition it's a world world competition uh it's like a three-minute thesis type competition and they run uh, in australia they run a state level competition and then a domestic australian level competition and a world competition so because i entered that uh, and I, I guess they thought I did okay. They then passed my name on to do Splendor in the Grass, which uh, was amazing. So Splendor in the Grass, they, I think it's only been for the last few years, they have a science tent. And uh, what they're doing in that science tent is they're trying to bring in uh, researchers, PhD students from throughout science, like chemistry, um, someone who did rocks, who did astrology, and then mathematics as well, to just give the passerby, the part like the people at the festival who are passing by, an opportunity to have a break from music, even though they're there to listen to music, to listen to something else that might be interesting, and just try and show people that science is not a dry subject and that it is interesting. And so it was a really exciting experience. It's probably one of the highlights of my outreach, science communication, and PhD kind of outside of research experience that I've had. But nobody goes to a music festival for science. Like, I'm, I can't imagine anyone stopping. Like, if yeah. I weren't sort of in the math communication space, if I were at one of these music festivals, I would not stop, even if I was a maths PhD student. Like, yeah. Who did you get to stop? Like, well, look, um, Dr. Carl was there the first year. So I wasn't there the first year, but Dr. Carl was there the first year. And 
I mean, he's... And for uh, those sessions. of you listening from outside Australia, like, Dr. Carl is a very big name in science communication in Australia. Yeah, he's, he's absolutely fantastic. And he was there the first year the science tent opened and there were lots, like, I think there was 100 people or more who attended his talks. Like, the tent was crowded with people. I, I wasn't there that year, but this is what I've, I've heard and, and seen pictures of. And I think that highlights that people do like science, like young people, people who attend festivals, they're all still interested in science. It's just that because they knew Dr. Carl, they came because they know how great he is at conveying science. And so I guess that, yeah, it's tough to get people to want to come to a science talk at a music festival, but we would stand outside the tent and uh, people were doing chemistry experiments and like we would stand there and help them. And you'd get tons of people who just come over and be like, what are you guys doing? What are you doing here? I think that was every second question is, what are you guys doing here? But then they would stay and they'd listen and they'd like ask questions. And I think it was just a lot of fun, even if you had one person in your session who said, oh, that was interesting. I didn't know maths did that like that. Then you just kind of, it, you'd nailed it. Because if you could just convince one person that math or another science subject wasn't boring, you just like, you'd made your career basically. That was the whole point. So, Yeah. It was a really, really great experience. I don't know how many people I convinced to do math, but <laughs> hopefully a few. Yeah, I mean, and like music festivals aren't exactly associated with like remembering what happens that night. <laughs> no, I guess not. Um, I mean, yeah, like it's it's definitely a harder sell. I think it's probably the harder sell that I've ever done at, at the music festival to convince people to come listen. But I think it was also just so enjoyable seeing because like as my talk and a lot of the other talks were all very interactive. So I actually had people playing out a game, like a mathematical model game type thing where they were in groups and they were in teams and they were competing. And I showed them how that kind of is used to predict things in cancer. And I mean, I thought people really loved it. I, I think people really loved it. <laughs> uh, but I don't know how much they remember from it, but I'll never know. Well, I mean, now I want to go to Splendor in the Grass just to see the science test. Yeah. I mean, this is this completely blows my mind. I thought that I had like wacky experiences doing outreach, but I think nothing beats that. And yeah, yeah. I, it's a it's a whole challenge on its own. It's probably more daunting than doing outreach for like little kids. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely very tough because you had a lot of people that were like three or two years younger than myself, like. Like they were only a few years younger. They were like uni age, a lot of them. So they were close to my age to then stand up and try and convince them that they should come listen to my talk instead of um, who was there, like Kid Cudi and Kendrick Lamar and things like that. That's pretty hard. That's pretty hard yes. sell. <laughs> Not easy. Um, but we like we also shared the green room with the comedy tent. So I met a lot of Australian comedy uh, comedians, sorry. And so that was also very cool. <laughs> So I felt very important. <laughs> so is that why you do you know, a lot of work in maths outreach? That, like I'm experiencing now sort of all the opportunities that come out from doing maths outreach. Like you said, like meeting lots of people yeah. you don't expect to ever meet. Like why do you spend a lot of time doing it? You've done a lot more outreach than most maths PhD students. Yeah. Why do I do it? Um, I think maybe... Subconsciously or consciously, it comes from the fact that I struggled so much. Like once I knew I, I loved math and I knew I loved modeling in diseases or modeling in medicine, I then struggled to be able to make that connect between liking that and then moving onwards. 
into like an actual career. And so I think having the ability to talk about what I love and the fact that I found what I love and that I get to do it every day, it kind of gives me a hope that maybe someone else in the audience who might've been me a few years ago, like when I was younger, can also see that it is possible uh, to continue in math or science. So I think I do it just so I can give people, I mean, who are slightly interested in science, the hope or the opportunity to continue on. So what have you learned about science communication or communication skills in general from doing all of this? Like, what do you reckon are some good tips? Um, so probably one of the biggest ones that stuck with me is uh, when I did FameLab, uh, which I mentioned earlier, it's like a three-minute thesis competition. Part of the day is that you get training. <laughs> I remember one of the first things they told me is that I'm not allowed to use the word model. Model is jargon. And um, they said that model means a model on a catwalk. So, and I think that I'd never appreciated how I was still using jargon. Uh, like I was still using words that weren't translatable to a good, like just a general audience. So I think I took that away that I have to really actually think about the words that I say that I'm used to saying and never get complacent, like never get used to using the same phrase. Like always think about what, what the meaning is behind what I'm trying to convey and making sure it actually is conveyable to the general audience. Yes, not being afraid to use the same phrase. I've experienced that, like when I was preparing for my Neumann talk, because it, like the project was a joint effort by a lot of people. And I found that there were very little words of my own because I was just curating the words of other people, like yeah, the golden phrases that other people had said to me and just putting that into one talk. And you have the experience as well that you've tried a lot of things and figured out what works and doesn't work. Yeah, I think it has definitely taken me a long time to say that I feel more confident, like giving a science communication talk. I think that Occam's Razor, um, the talk I gave for that podcast or that that um, presentation event, uh, went through a lot of edits and I had a lot of help from the journalist who was organising it and I learned a lot from that. So I think that just being able to have the opportunity to be involved in science communication has actually taught me about science communication because I don't think on my own I'm good at it necessarily but getting advice from people and feedback on what you're trying to say is so helpful. So for say a PhD student how does one seek opportunities like this because I I kind of fell into it by accident did yeah. you sort of fall into it by accident as well? Or? Yeah yep fell, fell right in <laughs> uh, <laughs> just took a wrong turn somewhere and then all of a sudden yeah. I was presenting um uh how did I I, to be honest, I, I don't really know how it started. I think that people saw that I liked talking and I, I like talking to other people just in general. And so someone then said, why don't you commit, um, compete in the three-minute thesis competition at Austin Mess? And so I, I did that. And then from that, I think I saw an email about FameLab and so I applied for that. And so I think I did definitely sometimes put myself out there. Sometimes I just... If anyone ever offered me or uh, like asked me to volunteer for something, I'd just say yes because I thought, why not? Like anything that I can do to learn about science communication is helpful. Um, but I think definitely looking for opportunities is never a bad thing. Like waiting for them to come along, you might be waiting forever. And I do always think there's no point ever being afraid to try something. I'm not a good public speaker. I'm not like I, I – auditioned for the debate team in high school and didn't make it like I was not good at communicating so <laughs> I don't think you have to be a good communicator to get one of like get an opportunity like this you just have to want to put yourself out there and try has the you know the outreach work ever turned around and influenced your research like have you ever 
change the way you do something in your research because of an idea you got through outreach? Uh, I mean, maybe a little bit. Uh, like, <laughs> I actually uh, volunteered at a Meet a Geek Day, which I think is uh, the name for it, which is part of the Science Week, the International Science Week at the University of Sydney. And basically, I think they have students come from all over the world and they get uh, PhD students and researchers to stand and just talk to them. And I was like, the students who come to this are so intelligent. I was showing them a little bit of my research and the questions they were just firing off at me. I was like, oh, no, I haven't thought of that. No, no, I haven't thought of that. Uh, so, yeah, I think that I've definitely taken ideas or at least be, been reinvigorized by um, these events. Like, I think they give you a bit more energy about your own research because when you describe it to someone and you see them understand it, but then also be interested in it, it gives you a renewed sense of interest. So I definitely think these have helped me continue in my path in research for sure. Like you said earlier, when you say modeling, most people think of a model on a catwalk. But I think even the people who know that like when we say modeling, it's not that I don't think people really understand what modeling is. How would you describe modeling in general? Because it, it sounds to me like your work is not, your mathematical work is not theorem proof, theorem proof. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's not. Yeah. No, definitely. <laughs> uh, so how would I describe modeling in general? I guess, so the idea behind mathematical modeling or, or modeling in mathematics is to be presented with a problem it doesn't necessarily have to be a biological problem. It could just be, like you mentioned, oceanography or climate change problem. I know someone who's working on modeling bushfires, which is pretty cool. Um, or it could be like fluids. Uh, people do a lot of applied mathematics and fluids. But I think the general idea behind modeling is to be given a problem and then be trying to quantify it or describe it using a mathematical framework. And the advantage of this framework is because we're actually able to then make predictions about what we're interested in or what we're trying to model over time or in the future. So it's this ability to take what we understand about the now and a problem in the now, or the characteristics of something around us, and then to predict what's going to happen to that thing over time. Or backtrack, you can also do evolution um, modeling. So my supervisor also does uh, modeling of evolution. So trying to understand how we evolved from hunter-gatherers. And they've done whole all these amazing predictions around why we evolved the way we are based on hunter-gatherer dynamics back then. So I think, yeah, I describe modeling as trying to understand a problem or something around us using maths, of course. <laughs> but then how do you describe the process of how you take a problem and then use mathematical modeling to come up with predictions? So I would probably say uh, I probably try and like describe it using the example of COVID currently. So at the moment, there is a lot of mathematical modeling that's going on at an epidemic or pandemic level. And what you might have seen or people might have seen in the news is predictions basically about how the number of new infections is going to evolve over time. So given the number of new cases at the moment, say in Australia, you might start, or, or at least back in April, there were lots of people who were predicting using mathematical models what the number of cases would look like over time based on whether we shut down or we had quarantine or, or things like that. And so when people say they're doing a mathematical model, in that case, what they're looking at 
if we kind of just even sometimes just simply is how we can describe different subsets of the population with an equation. So in the case of uh, COVID or the pandemic in Australia, you'd have a population of people that you would call who are called uninfected or susceptible individuals. So those who could become infected, you'd have, say, a population of people who were infected with the virus and those that had recovered and they were immune. And so using that general idea, what you create is an equation to describe how each population or subpopulation of people will evolve over time given some understanding of the current rate of infectivity. And these are all things that data can be used to inform. So if you create, say, just a general equation to describe how two people might be interacting and what the likelihood of their interaction is, and then you use data to inform that likelihood, we can make these predictions about how the number of new cases in Australia might evolve over time. So I kind of describe it as I still always think of things in math as kind of visually or in descriptive language like that where you think about first of all what you're trying to do and then you think about what type of mathematics you can apply to that problem or that situation so that means you have to understand this thing around us right like you probably had to pick up a little biology along the way like how does that work because i imagine that whatever systems in biology which you're modeling are also not very simple to understand yeah no, they're, they're not. I think that's where it comes back kind of full circle to what I said at the beginning. There's no point doing it if you're not interested in it. So I think that I was super fascinated by, uh, once I started reading about it, by cancer and by the immune system. And so it kind of felt like it was exciting for me to keep reading about it. So while it was challenging to try and wrap my head around this little small field of biology, which relates to a massive field of biology that I haven't actually done study of, um, it was exciting. So I, was, I enjoyed it. And so that's why I kept going. And I think there's so much in the world. Um, it's possible to find something that you're excited about and driven by so that when you read about it, even though it is challenging to try and understand it, you kind of, it's, it's okay. It's not too, too hard. Um, but yeah, I, I would say that I've learned a lot about biology and immunology. But if a biologist or an immunologist asked me to sit a first year exam, I don't know how I do. So <laughs> I still think it's very complex to me. So like you said, you know, you're not a biologist. There's no way you would understand it fully, right? How do you tease out, like, these are the bits that I need to know and these are the bits I don't need to know? I mean, my experience with that is a bit of like statistical consulting. You know, how do I know what questions to ask? Well, that's a tough one. I think that... Um, I think that that is a kind of a challenge, definitely, because you could spend days going down one avenue, learning about one aspect of biology that you might think is important to your problem, and it might not be. Uh, so it's it's a bit of a challenge. I think it's all about my my, pers- uh, my PhD supervisor said it to me once. He said, you've got to know once you've gone a certain way down a path, when to turn around and go down a different path, because it's only then like... So that instead of trying to understand the whole biology behind a concept, so I don't know, for example, like say you want to understand how cancer cells grow, well, maybe you're not interested in what happens inside a cancer cell, but there is that risk that you could go down that avenue and spend lots of time reading about what's inside a cell. So you kind of have to just know how to balance how much you need to know with when to change to something else or a different, a different aspect of biology. So it is really challenging. I think it's something I've only learned over time. 
So when you pick up a project, do you work with a biologist the whole way through? Or is there a point where you have one meeting and the biologist says, okay, come back with the model? <laughs> I mean, it really just depends on uh, on the type of project, who you're working with. So people I work, some of the people I work with now are super involved. Like we meet weekly or fortnightly or I'm regularly sending them emails and asking questions. Um, some of the biologists I've worked with, it's more been, here's our data, here's our question. And I've gone away and worked on it. Uh, so it just really depends on who you get to collaborate with. But I would definitely say having the opportunity to collaborate with a biologist or experimentalist or a clinician has been massive to helping inform the projects I work on. Because without them, I feel like we can create as many models as we want, but we really need people who actually understand the field to be able to make sure that they're correct. It's kind of like, the end of the day, you could create a model if you're a biologist, but you'd still probably want to talk to a mathematician to confirm that the mathematics behind it makes sense. And I think it's the same thing if you're doing mathematics, but of a biological problem. Yeah. On that point, like biologists make models too, yeah. right? Like I teach first year maths to biology students at UNSW, right? Yeah. We probably like said a lot of things that answered this question, but I guess the question I'm leading to here is, what makes you a mathematician and not a biologist? <laughs> I mean, I think what still separates mathematicians from biologists is whether you're doing the actual experiments and you're wanting to investigate the actual thing itself or whether you're wanting to create the predictions about future uh, future events or trying to understand something that we don't know. So in mathematics, like what I'm always kind of looking for is the unknown or something or the answer to a question that might not be answered by an experiment. Whereas an experimentalist is looking, I mean, I'm talking broadly because I'm not an experimentalist, but like more looking at how can we find answers to things using the tools that we have. And so I think that I'm still very much a mathematician because I'm working in the unknown very much, like predict, creating models based in biology, but still are trying to predict things that we, we don't necessarily know. Um, and I do use math every day. <laughs> so I think that still somehow makes me a mathematician because I'm still regularly writing equations. I mean, I think a lot of people might think like, why don't we just cut to the chase and do the experiments? My understanding is that your work is the thing that comes before the experiments. Yeah. I mean, but also experiments are costly. They're time consuming. Uh, it takes me, what, an hour or less to simulate something that might take months. So I think that it's a time thing. It's uh, cost thing. And it's also that sometimes we can't answer these questions with experiments. We, we we can't always ask a question and then go into the lab and answer it with an experiment. But we can ask a question, run some experiments that help inform a mathematical model that can be used to make predictions that we can then maybe check with experiments. So I think they're definitely something that's like the best use of mathematical biology I've seen is when they work simultaneously or combined. When you have a mathematician and a biologist who work together to develop models and biological experiments that complement each other to answer a question that neither could have answered alone. Yeah. Someone was saying to me the other day that like you can't test if or you can't figure out if COVID restrictions are working by having one city under COVID restrictions and the other one not. Like I guess that yeah, you can't that's do that. why we do modeling on them. Yeah. You... yeah, that's there you go. That's exactly it. Like you 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 can't run that experiment in real life. But we have data based on what's happened in a city, for example, like Victoria, what's happened there because they went into restriction. And so we can use a model to then predict 
how much better the restrictions were or when the restrictions need to go in based on that on that data. One of the things that you told me before we did this podcast is that you you work in translatable mathematics. And you've mentioned that a few times actually now. <laughs> but does that just mean like you work in mathematics that can be applied to the real world? Like what does that actually mean? Yeah, I, I think that's basically how I would describe it. It's the point of everything I create is to be translated into the real world. And that's not to say that all mathematics needs to be translatable. I think there's a massive need for mathematics that understands mathematics. Like there's a need for mathematics that helps us understand computers. Like there's a need for all different fields of mathematics. I definitely am in the area where I like to think of it that I use the mathematics that all the mathematicians have worked really hard to understand to then just apply it to real world so we can understand the real world. So I would say that, yeah, I work very much at the, how can I build a model that can be useful to a clinician and actually give them predictions that they'd be happy to then work off? So that's a lot of what I'm doing in my postdoc is developing models of virtual patients. And so basically you could simulate a virtual patient if you knew what their tumor biopsy was made of, simulate a treatment on them, and then inform real time what that treatment should be that would give them the best of prognosis, basically. So I definitely work at that kind of edge of mathematics. And I guess like you need to work very hard to understand the biology, there might be an extent to which you have to explain the mathematics to a biologist, right? Yeah. What is that like? It's very, I think it's hard. Um, And I think that's why science, like coming around back to science outreach, I think that's why that's been so helpful for me because it's given me an appreciation of how to convey something so that it's understandable and you don't need to spend hours explaining it. You can explain it quickly, but so that the audience can grasp actually what you're describing and then ask questions because there's no point going to a biologist and describing your model in detail and then uh, saying, well, this didn't, didn't make any sense to me because you want the biologists and the experimentalists you work with to question you. And similar, similarly with when I work with biologists, they don't just bring an experiment to me and describe all the technical detail. They describe it to me in the language that makes sense so I can ask questions about how those experiments were run. Uh, so it has been very challenging, I think. Um, I think I use a lot of metaphors. I use a lot of diagrams. Um, and I think we just spend time getting to know each other's jargon and language so that we can easily communicate. But do you think then that that means biologists don't do enough maths in their training? No. Like, I mean, I think that there is such a need for biologists who are biologists and experimentalists that like it's kind of like saying, should I as a mathematician have done biology in my training? I don't think that because I didn't do it in my undergrad, it's in any way disadvantaged me. If anything, I think the fact I got to focus on math meant that by the time I tried to use math in biology, my mathematical foundation was strong enough that I could allow myself to learn more biology or spend time learning it. So I actually think it's fine. I think it's, um, I mean, it'd be interesting to hear what a biologist would say, whether they wish they did more math for sure. Um, But I guess I wouldn't know because I I don't know. But from my experience, I feel like biologists are very switched on. (laughs) I've had very difficult questions from very difficult models from biologists. So I think that they're got a really good understanding of mathematics. I think when you throw out the word applied mathematics to a random person on the street, if anything, the first thing that comes to mind is the kind of stuff that you're doing. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't think they think of like optimization or computational maths or things like that. Right. And more so with this thing that's going on in the world right now. 
Yeah. And I think of all the Neumann winners, you were the person whose research seems on the surface the most applicable. Like it seems to fulfill that fantasy that, you know, you're publishing a paper and then two weeks later, it's changing the world. Like you're, you're, <laughs> it, it seems like you're, you're saving like this whole idea of like, oh, math saving lives and things like that. And I mean, it kind of is with like, you do some work with COVID, right? So it's yeah, not yeah. like you're not helping, you know? Yeah. Like, but is that right? You know, like to what extent is your work actually having an impact on people's lives? I mean, it's definitely, I, I wouldn't say that I'm saving lives currently. I mean, I use that, I, I think we use the phrase that maths can save lives or can help because it, it can, it can help in the developmental process and it can help us get further along our timelines of like treatment development than we would if we didn't use mathematics. But it's definitely a very iterative process. Like it takes a lot of time to develop new treatments, but I have been very fortunate to be working with people who are actually working real time in, in clinical studies or with, with patients who have cancer. And so that's been really eye-opening because it also means that the mathematics I'm doing is starting to make somewhat of an impact on decisions or the mindset of clinicians and experimentalists. And that's pretty daunting, like <laughs> pretty um, humbling, I think. So I would still say that I'm not having like, I'm not impacting clinical design right now today, but the work we're doing is hoping to inform it in the near future, I guess, or in, in the close future. And I guess like on your point that you're just working on a really small part of you know, no yeah. one is single-handedly saving lives. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, um, uh, it's definitely a multidisciplinary, multi-group project where different groups contribute to different aspects. And so, I think the biggest part of what I do is collaborating, and I think that's the most important aspect: is uh, working with other people on what they're doing to just help them make more informed decisions about drug treatments. So, like we've talked a lot about the nature of the mathematics that you do. And I want to end with the question that we ask all our guests, which is to complete the sentence, a mathematician is someone who. Okay. Well, to me, a mathematician is someone, I believe, who is curious about the world around them and who questions the world around them and wants to know more about it. Many thanks to Adrienne for talking to us for this episode. To find out more about Adrienne, you can visit her website linked in the show notes or follow her on Twitter. We've also included a link to her Occam's Razor talk, which we mentioned in the episode. This episode was produced by Alice Hu and myself. We're taking a week off with the interviews, but we'll be back very soon to speak with another Norian winner. Neumann Talk is a podcast produced by students and staff from the School of Mathematics and Statistics at UNSW Sydney and hosted by me, Yudi Bunyamin. Follow UNSW Maths and Stats on Facebook or Instagram to see updates on the latest episodes as well as other exciting news from our school. If you've been listening to our podcast, then we'd love to hear from you. Send me a tweet or a message on Twitter at Yudi underscore Bunyamin. Let us know who you are and if there's something one of the winners talked about that really resonated with you, 
or even if you have any questions about mathematics of your own.